Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You cannot possibly, you know, uh, work on evidence-based practices, for example, for trauma or uh, major depression, if you don't address the context. And this is something that psychology has been missing for a while. This is what in multicultural psychology we've been trying to address, to bring up with mainstream psychology. But uh, it is hard to come. You're listening to Dr. Sandra Matar on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We've talked a lot about sleep on the podcast, and as mental health professionals, we know that having quality sleep is really important to mood and mental health, and that's why we are excited to pair up with Monta Sleep. They offer innovative sleep masks and other accessories to help you sleep better. I am a dedicated sleep mask wearer. My sleep mask is a lifesaver when my husband's up late reading or on these bright summer mornings when I want to sleep in. And not only does a sleep mask provide me with the dark environment I need for a deeper sleep, I have become classically conditioned to it. Getting out my sleep mask is a cue for bedtime. And like Pavlov's dogs, as soon as I put that thing on, my body remembers that it's time for bed. Well, I'm newer to sleep masks and I've never used one before until I tried this one. So I was really excited to try it out and see what the hype was all about. And the Monta mask is really light and comfortable. And before I tried it, I don't think I realized how much the light in my bedroom was waking me up in the morning. So now I feel a lot more refreshed when I wake up. So here's what you can expect with Monta sleep masks. There are six different versions to choose from. They all offer 100% blackout for a deeper sleep, are infinitely adjustable for custom fit. They're soft, breathable, have zero pressure on your eyelids or eyelashes, and are made with durable snag-free materials. You can choose from the original sleep mask or a slim sleep mask with barely their feel. You can also go deluxe with a cool mask to soothe your eyes and sinuses, a warm mask with natural steam, a lavender aroma mask to target your scent vents or a weighted mask. So check them out at montasleep.com. Join their social media at, at nap with Monta and at montasleep and get 10% off by entering the coupon code off the clock. We are also sponsored by Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis offers online and continuing education in ACT, CBT, compassion-focused therapy. Some of their on-demand courses right now are ACT Immersion with Steve Hayes, which you can on your own timeline. Matthew Boone is offering a CE workshop on ACT 1. And Louise Hayes is offering a workshop on the DNA V model, which is great to use if you're working with teens. And for those of you that are interested in some online courses, 
There's a great course coming up on Wednesday, July 22nd with Anthony Biglin on Commit to Act, Evolving a Society that Works for Everyone. So check them out at praxiscet.com or if you go through our website, which is offtheclockpsych.com, we have a discount code there for their live online courses. For those of you that want to learn more about contextual behavioral science, the ACBS World Conference 2020 is online this year, and the program is happening from July 16th to July 19th. Registration is available, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. And two of our podcast co-hosts, Jill Stoddard and Debbie Sorensen, will be speaking on a panel on the imposter syndrome. So check them out on Saturday morning, and we hope to see you there. Today we have Dr. Sandra Matar on the show. I'm really excited for you all to listen to her. She is an expert in immigrant and refugee mental health and also a uh, a professor and, and teacher in how to be ethnoculturally responsive in our approaches to psychological treatment. And she weaves in story, her personal examples, as well as really what is the current and most cutting edge approach to providing culturally competent care. Yeah, it's a great episode. I learned a lot and I think she's doing amazing work. And Debbie and I wanted to expand on something important that she talks about and she weaves throughout the episode, which is the tendency of Western psychology to focus too much on the individual without focusing enough on the context, whether that's the context of the strengths in their culture and their community, or it's the context of oppression, racism, uh, limited resources that we really often miss those uh, important areas. In this episode, Dr. Matar talks about how it's not enough to provide mental health treatment for trauma if the ongoing traumatic context isn't addressed. For example, systemic racism and other forms of oppression can turn into a blame the victim mentality or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, where the individual is expected to adapt to harmful situations. Yeah, I think in general, Western psychology really does focus on the individual issues, and it's at the expense of neglecting bigger systemic issues that are really, really important and that can just get overlooked, I think, in psychology and in therapy, because a lot of times we look toward changing something about the individual, right? Helping them adapt or adjust or accept something, but sometimes that's just really barking up the wrong tree. And I think we see this in so many different areas in psychology. I think a lot about this in terms of my very favorite episode of all time was Debbie's interview with Dr. Aaron Andrew, who talks about disability rights and about that the, the struggles that individuals have are is often not the individual adjusting to the disability as much as the stigma and lack of access that are this really the problem. She really gives some eye-opening examples of that. And I looked a lot at my own life and my own ways in which I participate in not um, providing access to individuals with disability. It's similar with sexual orientation and gender minorities, which were considered disorders in the DSM for a long time. And this caused a lot of harm uh, and ignored the stigma and hostility that people face that contribute so much to mental health concerns. Yeah. And, and I think that as women, we see this too all the time, right? Because we have sexist structures in place and we have all these expectations with a, without enough support. So for instance, women who are trying to have a successful career and they face things like workplace culture, sexual harassment, lower pay, 
you know, sexism limiting opportunities and really even just workplace culture that's just oriented toward a more male perspective. It's these systemic barriers that are the real problem. I think that it's, this is all complex, right? And part of what I'm trying to do is do more learning and listening. And I just feel like over the last couple of um, weeks, there's been just so much to download and shift in my perspective taking. And um, that's why I think an episode like this with Sandra Matar is so helpful because it gives views in different perspectives um, that can really shape our work so that we can do a better job as mental health providers. Yeah, that's really important. I think another area that that we see this a lot is when we talk about things like burnout and work stress. And a lot of the conversations are about like, oh, you have to take better care of yourself and practice mindfulness and all these things. But people are working here in the United States in environments that can be really toxic. So where they're expected to work all the time, a lot of pressure, not enough support. They're working maybe in isolation and on screens. And we're in workplaces where people do experience things like sexual harassment, you know, microaggression, racism. And so often when we're looking at these types of treatments for burnout, we're, we're really not addressing the underlying problem, which is more about work, workplace culture and, and systems within organizations. And I think that's why we need to ask more questions. We need to list, listen more. We need to dig for strengths, look at cultural influences and just bigger system when doing our clinical work. That's right. I think a lot of the clinical tools that we're used to using from, including some perfectly good ones that are helpful in a lot of ways, but these evidence-based tools often just don't do a good job of this, right? So even something that came from Eastern traditions, like mindfulness practices get kind of westernized and co-opted into this point of view, right? So I read this book, McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality by Ronald Purser. And he writes about how a lot of the traditional elements of Buddhism that were really focused on helping people and changing systems and making the world a better place through right actions have been kind of taken out of context and have become about the individual and about making people happier in this sort of self-fulfillment and it really gets lost. And he advocates that teachers of mindfulness need to get back to acknowledging that, that personal stress is also often caused by societal problems. There's a wonderful book by Larry Yang that talks just about that. He is a Buddhist teacher who wrote the book, Awakening Together, the Spiritual Practice of Inclusivity and Community. He talks about his own experience in terms of racism and his own personal spiritual practice of really um, looking more at community and systemic influences. I think that in moving forward, this is the time for us to continue to listen and learn and um, really hope that you enjoy as much as we did this interview with Sandra Matar. Dr. Sandra Matar is an assistant professor at Boston University School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry. She is a founding member of the Division 56 Trauma Psychology of the American Psychological Association and is a past chair of the Committee on Ethnic Minority Affairs of APA.
She's currently a member of the APA Race and Ethnicity Guidelines Task Force and is a graduate of Williams James College and the Universidad Católica Andrés Bello in Venezuela and has done field research around war, trauma, and in Lebanon. Dr. Matar's research interests are on the intersection of psychological trauma and culture, immigrants and refugee mental health, mental health disparities, multicultural and international psychology, cultural considerations and disaster mental health, culturally sensitive education and training, and mindfulness and spirituality. She is currently an associate editor of the Journal of Psychological Trauma. Dr. Matar is bilingual in English and Spanish and speaks conversational Arabic and French, and she has a yoga teacher certification, which I'll be excited to talk to her about. So welcome. Thank you so much for coming on our show. And it's such a relevant time to have your expertise to talk to us about immigrant and refugee mental health and mental health disparities. Thank uh, you so really, much, Diane. Yeah. And you've really dedicated your career um, to this area. Can you talk about what the personal and professional relevance is for you? Absolutely. Well, I am the daughter of immigrants uh, in Venezuela. My parents are originally from Lebanon. And so I was born in Venezuela and then became uh, an immigrant here myself in the U.S. and my kids were born here. So uh, I've always been really interested in the psychology of immigrants and immigration. And when I came here to the United States, I started working with uh, refugees and immigrants and uh, I discovered that that was my field of interest, that that was what I was really interested in doing. And uh, it was an area where I really wanted to help because I would say the, the experience of coming here thrusted me into becoming the other. I was very privileged in Venezuela. I was seen as a white woman, a privileged woman, um, because in the scheme of things, of race, racial uh, understanding, I was seen as a white woman being the daughter of Lebanese immigrants. And uh, when I came here, I, I realized that I became the other with my accent and with um, the, the country that I came from, Venezuela. That, uh, so that put me in, into a social category that I had never experienced before, becoming the other. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that really created, a, um, not only was painful, but uh, it also was a great learning experience for me that has helped me throughout my career, that just that sense of what it means to be the other. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe uh, it has helped me connect, empathize, be more compassionate with my patients. And uh, also growing up speaking several languages uh, made me very interested in, uh, in different cultures, in, in, in cultures in general, and how to see the world from the other's perspective. I think that every language is pretty much an effort. Uh, when you speak a different language, it puts you, it makes you see the world in a different way. There are all these nuances that if I had only was like monolingual, I would have not noticed before. Mm-hmm. So that's how I was thrusted into this field. And it has, again, become, it's my passion. It's what I, uh, what, where I've centered my work. And now at the uh, at the Boston Center for Refugee Health and Human Rights, which is at the BU School of Medicine and at Boston Medical Center. That's, uh, it's a sort of a culmination of my career because I work uh, there with uh, immigrants, uh, immigrants and refugees. And I also work with trauma, which is uh, uh, the other interest, my other interest. Um, many of the asylum seekers and the refugees that I work with there are trauma survivors, they are uh, survivors of torture. 
So this is a great place where I can bring my understanding of uh, the psychology of immigration and uh, exile, the psychology of exile, uh, with my knowledge of the psychology of trauma and my knowledge in multicultural issues and cultural anthropology, which has been, uh, my dissertation was uh, around a very much a cultural topic. It was called The Self-Revisited and Multicultural Perspective. And it was a critique of the notions of the individualistic notions of self that dominated the language of psychology, the narrative in psychology. And uh, it was sort of providing another option and, and sort of trying to, I guess my goal was to try to persuade people that it was important to use not only an individualistic approach, but also to incorporate a more collectivistic approach in their work. I love how you highlight both uh, the resiliency of the you know an immigrant experience and all of the strengths and resiliency and, and positive outgrowths that you've personally experienced and um, as well as the challenges and I'm wondering if we can talk about specifically some of the mental health challenges that show up both from immigrating to the United States and, and the process of immigration but also the process that you talk about in terms of acculturation and feeling other and and oppression that happens. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I could speak about some of the experience I've had, but I, I know that I am, a pre, even, even if, if I am a Latina immigrant and I've been uh, discriminated against and I've experienced that, I think I'm still a very privileged woman here in the U.S. because of the way I look, because of my uh, socioeconomic level, because of my um, educational level. But I can tell you about my Patients, I've been working with immigrant populations for 20 some years now, uh, not only at, at the Boston Center for Refugee Health, but also in California. When I lived there, I worked at the Center for New Americans. And uh, the experiences are, they are devastating in terms of what they go through. They are very difficult. We, we talk about them having to assimilate into a new culture. But it's not only about learning the, the social mores of the new culture and, and knowing how to take a bus, how to uh, go to the library, how to apply for social security. It's, it's so much more than that. It's, it's the, for many of them, it's the, the, for the first time they experience racism and they don't know how to deal with that. Interestingly enough, uh, I have patients from Africa. The majority of the patients I see at Boston Medical Center are from Africa. And uh, when I, uh, it is imperative that I talk to them about what's happening right now because they all suffer from PTSD and they are black. And so I, I talk to them about, I ask them, so what do you think of everything that's happening uh, with the Black Lives Movement and all those videos that have been, uh, we've been watching uh, out there? And um, they said, interestingly enough, that they had never experienced racism. They, they are learning about it now because in their countries, they experience political discrimination or uh, political um, uh, harassment, also tribal. They were, di because they belong to one tribe or the other, that's how they experienced harassment and, and eventually got them in trouble. And that's why they applying for asylum here. But uh, leading, uh, working with race and, and knowing what to, how to teach their children to deal with race, that's a very new thing for them. So that's one thing. And another issue that they have to deal with is uh, a sense of lack of control. Uh, and I'm talking mainly with uh, the asylum seekers. Right mm -hmm. now, things are very different, very difficult for asylum seekers in terms mm -hmm. of, of the laws and, and the, and the um, 
uh, laws that regulate the asylum seeking process, it's being very complicated. Um, but parents, it's very hard to raise your kids uh, in another country. It's very hard in many cases to raise your kids without a community. And yes, many immigrants find communities here, and yet they uh, they don't have the the help of parents and grandparents and community in general that they had before. So there's this sense of isolation. There's this sense of lack of control. There is a sense of uh, misunderstanding that, that they're being misunderstood. There is a sense of going uh, always uphill because they are not familiar with the educational system here. They they make mistakes. The problem with language skills, the difficulties with language skills, it's all an uphill battle for many. And yet they also recognize the amazing amount of help they get here in the U.S. in, in certain areas. At the refugee clinic, we provide uh, all kinds of help. We provide legal help. We provide um, food. Um, we, they, they are able to, to obtain clothing and they're able to get uh, medical care, dental care. So, and this, in most of it, because we're a public hospital, uh, is for free for many of them, even though uh, they have uh, insurance too. Um, so, yes, it is, it is not easy. The, the psychology of the immigrant is, um, and then the psychology of acculturation, we have to talk about it. It is, how do you acculturate and what kind of trajectory do you follow? Because we'll see that people follow different trajectories depending on where do they live. Is it mainly a white neighborhood or a, a, a different uh, brown mixed neighborhood? Is it what kind of resources uh, do they have when they arrive here? Who sort of sponsor them? Uh, which uh, schools do their kids go to? Uh, what, what's the, did they leave their country? Were they forced to leave their country or was, they, was it a choice? That Just that in itself. Uh, can change the whole psychology of acculturation and, and psychology of immigration. Um, who was allowed to make decisions to come here? Were they sponsored when they arrived here? Were they by themselves when they arrived? Did they come uh, with a family? That all changes the trajectory of the mental health for these immigrants. There was two Supreme Court decisions that came out in June that shows sort of the uncertainty sort of the unpredictability of current administration and its impact in our, in, uh, on immigrants and asylum seekers. And I'm wondering if we can speak about the mental health implications of that. So the first Supreme Court decision was in blocking the current administration's attempt to end DACA, which is deferred action for childhood arrivals. And it helps protect undocumented immigrants who are brought to the U.S. before the age of 16. And I'm wondering how the impact of DACA on, on undocumented children and young adults, as well as the potential reversal of that, and that, that sort of back and forth impacts that, that, again, that sense of safety, not only for, for individuals that are recent to the US, but individuals that have been here, living here for years and years and years, going in schools, in universities. So I'd love to talk about mental health implications of DACA as well as the, then the Supreme Court decision that came out that blocked um, asylum for refugees. Yes, and I, I uh, 
you know, I was so thrilled to hear about DACA and the decision that they finally understood that these kids were born, many of these kids were born here or these kids came here very young and some of their parents are not with them. Some of them don't even speak. For example, I'm thinking of of many of the Mexican or Central Americans uh, that have come here that are under the DACA program. They don't speak Spanish at all. They were, they grew up here and this is, this has been their country and this is where they went to school. And, and so going back and not, not having anyone, if they go back, uh, I mean, can you imagine how devastating it is and how isolating and scary it is for a 13, even eight year old, nine year old to, to think that they would be sent back and they don't have anyone uh, there to be with them or uh, they cannot move with their parents or they don't have any options. So it's utter helplessness. Um, to be going back and forth in terms of the government's decisions about their program. I'm sure that right now they are they feel temporarily safe. But if you're thinking about trauma, and many of these kids live uh, in, in traumatic circumstances or have had uh, families with traumatic histories, they've experienced themselves uh, histories of trauma, but they also experience major depression and and. And this back and forth of the government, I can see very clearly how it has produced uh, many cases of major depression, anxiety disorder, uh, uh, inability to sleep, nightmares. I mean, it is, they don't feel rooted at all. And I think that um, if you think about mental health, feeling rooted in one community is what gives mental health. It's a, it's a major promoter of mental health. And they don't have that. They have now that temporarily. But it is, uh, they know that tomorrow, next week, the government can come up with another regulation, another law that will sabotage what uh, the, the court, even though it's the Supreme Court, uh, there's so many ways to sabotage this process and this population. And um, the, the um, oftentimes trauma treatment is done as something that happened in the past. When, when, a, when a client comes in who has a sexual trauma or Absolutely. it's okay, we can work on work through your trauma. When the trauma is ongoing, I'm just so curious how, how you work with that. With and thank you for bringing that up because we are, we tend as psychologists to be sort of uh, isolated sometimes from the context. You know, we're looking at symptoms. We focus on the symptoms and we want to make sure that we're helping them with the symptoms that they are showing in our therapy rooms. And sometimes we, we work sort of in a vacuum. And this is something I teach. Uh, I also teach courses in multicultural psychology, trauma psychology, and social justice. And uh, I try to help my students understand that whatever is happening out there, it's important to bring it up in the therapy room. And how can you treat a DACA person, for example, uh, treat their, their symptoms of PTSD or major depression and not talk about the fear and the uncertainty, not talk about the implication of the law and the, and the decisions in their lives. This is, in terms of, if you were to have sort of a Maslow hierarchy, that would be first on the list to talk about. You cannot possibly, you know, uh, work on evidence-based practices, for example, for trauma or uh, major depression, if you don't address the context. And this is something that psychology has been missing for a while. This is what in multicultural psychology we've been trying to address, to bring up with mainstream psychology. But uh, it is hard to come. It, there is a reluctance because there is um, the idea that the psychologist 
is there to treat the individual but not to treat the context. Mm -hmm. That's how we are trained in clinical psychology in general. There are programs, obviously, counseling psychology is a field that has paid a lot of attention to the context. Um, But it's important. So it's important that we address the context. In terms of what you just mentioned, yes, recently I just found out about what's going to happen to the asylum seekers. When they come to me, most of my uh, asylum seekers, they ask me, what am, what's going to happen to me? Uh, what's going to happen to my life? Doctor, is my life ever going to be the same? And when I started working with them, I would say, you know, you will never forget what happened to you. But um, there is a way that you become the author of your own story once you, come, you are here in the U.S. There is, a, a, like Judy Herman says in Trauma and Recovery, you can, you can gain sense of agency of your own memories and your own stories. You won't forget them, but you can be in control somehow. And that's what we do at the clinic. We provide um, all kinds of services so that they can feel that sense of control. Mm-hmm. But then what, I, what am I going to tell them next week when I go back uh, and tell them that uh, the, the option for hope is closing down? Uh, it is hard to work that way. Before, I was able to tell them, you, you know, the... the, the we write affidavits for our patients all the time, clinical affidavits. So we, we, I just finished writing one for someone who went through um, work, um, forced labor here in Massachusetts, and he's seeking asylum with his family. But now the, the criteria to grant asylum is becoming, uh, it's, it's basically, it's getting, uh, uh, smaller and smaller and smaller in terms of the of yeah. the options that we can use, right? And the yeah. the window of, of, of the window. safety is exactly is, yeah a sliver. So what do you tell yeah. them? It's it's hard for me, and I have to be honest with them. So yeah. I started uh, recently, a few months ago. I started telling them that well, you're right. I mean, it's not it's not easy. We're gonna try to do our best to help you and support you. Your immigration law attorney will try to do the his best or her best to to help you, um, but but the options are becoming very limited and, and now even more so. So it is hard. It's hard to offer hope, which is the main culprit to recovery from major depression and, and PTSD is once you offer, offer that, they, uh, um, they have a different outlook. It's sort of a cognitive ref- mm-hmm. and emotional reframing of, of their lives when you give them hope. And they want to hear someone, someone in, in a role of authority to give them hope. And I don't know if I can do that anymore. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. How how do you hold that as <laughs> as a therapist? You yeah. you know go home and spend time with your family. And I think one of the things that keeps psychologists from learning and growing uh, is willingness to enter the discomfort. Absolutely. And, and you're doing it on a day-to-day basis. How do you manage that for yourself? You know, interestingly enough, my spiritual practice, I, I became uh, just a short story. I, I used to be uh, Catholic. Uh, I grew up Catholic. And I, at some point, even start, thought of becoming a nun. So that's how Catholic I was. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, fast forward 28 years later, and I, um, through a big life crisis, uh, I became, uh, I decided to start doing yoga and yoga led me to more of a spiritual path. 
which I've always been interested in, obviously. A spiritual path, path has always been interesting. So I'm exploring more ideas of um, Buddhist psychology and the idea of compassion and has been very helpful to me. And I think this is a term that I know it was, I uh, started, it was brought up um, initially by some of the Buddhist psychologists in the 70s, like Ram Das and others. But uh, now with the, the ideas around mindfulness, it's sort of, people are talking more about, about open up your heart, being self-compassionate, being compassionate with others. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, uh, as Buddhist psychology teaches you, it's, it's limitless. There's no limit to how much compassion you can give, mm-hmm. even though we have a term called compassion fatigue in trauma psychology, right? In disaster psychology. Um, yes, you can, you can get compassion fatigue, but at the same time, uh, my own practice of yoga, mindfulness, meditation has helped me a lot to open up my comfort zone and uh, expand it and just sit down with the pain and the suffering and not become uh, weighed down by it. It's become positive and always hopeful. And I think I brought that in in, my, in, in the therapy room. Mm-hmm. Yes. I also wonder about how taking values-based action on such a daily basis may also contribute to the feeling that you're doing something. And part yes. of compassion is, is both feeling it, feeling and experiencing the discomfort and then taking action to make change and alleviate suffering. And you're doing both. And uh, it's, it's really incredible uh, that, that you're, you're in the trenches and you're, you know, you're, you're doing a podcast interview and, you know, not like crying, you know, the whole, whole time. It teaches you to be, uh, to reside in equanimity, really. Yeah. Uh, yes, I had my training, my psychology training to be, to be uh, empathic and to try to keep um, boundaries but I, the way, I, I've redefined the way of uh, um, the idea of keeping boundaries. It's just, I just simply open up my heart. Um, and uh, this is a language that I had never used before. And trust me, I, if you had asked, if you had told me four years ago that I would be doing yoga and seeking a spiritual path today, I would have told you that you're crazy, that I'm a, a scientist, that I'm a psychologist, and that does not belong in the world of psychology. And here I am. It's I've enriched my enriched my practice and become a much better practitioner by including this, and uh, I am very very clear and strong about it. I, I it's very clear that it has enriched the, and improved the quality of the work uh, with my trauma patients. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Another current uh, experience for immigrant and refugee population is COVID and I, and you're working in a hospital yes, setting yes. here. And yes. I'm wondering what you're seeing in terms of COVID impacting uh, refugee population, immigrant population, and then also how it's changed your practices as a mental health Absolutely. provider. How are, how are you doing yeah. this? I did a, a seminar, a webinar with APA on that very topic uh, yeah. last week. So, so uh, yes, the minute we found out about the, the COVID, uh, the implications that COVID brought with it, we immediately uh, turned, uh, uh, started offering the option of telehealth. So then we were asked, as, uh, all the clinicians were asked to go home and work from home. Hopefully we have all the technology to uh, access the records through Epic, uh, the hospital records, and we were able, and then through um, programs like um, apps like Doximity, that are encoded and, and protect privacy and confidentiality, we were able to do therapy. 
And so I've been, I've been doing therapy from home, telehealth, both uh, phone and video through Doximity uh, since March. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we are not going to the hospital, hopefully, um, uh, let's see, I believe until the end of July, I, uh, yesterday they, they announced that we might go back at the end of July. So uh, it's been very interesting because we've realized that we can reach out more people in, in a more effective way. If you think about it, my patients used to pay around, they live uh, in outside of the Boston area. So it takes, it's very, uh, it takes them a while to get to our, to the hospital. They would spend between 25 and $30 to between buses and trains and to get to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And now we just call them and they are there. And so we've been able, the rate of no-shows for all the clinicians has dropped significantly. Wow. So the showing rate was, it used to be on average for 60% for uh, all the clinicians, and now it's 90 to 95%. Wow. Really highlights is, that contextual barrier, right? Of absolutely. Just transportation, absolutely. finances, yeah, to therapy. Not only that, I'm, absolutely. And, uh, and so it's a, sort of a discovery. Wow, we can, we can reach more patients. We can be more effective. Yeah. by doing this. And this has completely shifted the way we think about how to provide therapy. Another, another issue that we've encountered that's wonderful is that we're able to talk to the patient's uh, family. I was trained also as a family therapist too. One of my uh, do- uh, internships were at a family therapy institute. And uh, to me, it's very natural. Also, I come from a communi- communalistic culture, and it's very natural to do family therapy. And it's not that I'm doing family therapy, but yet, but I am able to meet the family. I'm able to speak with some of them. I'm able to even uh, encourage some of them to seek therapy because uh, they are struggling. And so just... Um, it's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. It makes all the difference in terms of the quality of the work. And for the patient, there's a high level. They report back a high level of satisfaction mm-hmm. that we're able to talk to their kids, to their partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So that's or even just a window into people's homes. I mean, I've Absolutely. been finding it so valuable for people to pull off things from their bedroom and show me objects and meet their pets and look outside what they have outside their window. And it's just, it's like this whole world that you don't see or you don't enter into as a therapist that now we're being exposed to and about the human. Yeah. About absolutely. Like you like talked about the whole concept context in which the individual lives, which is really starts in the home and and what are their living conditions? That's wonderful. It is, it is wonderful. And it's also a reminder to me of, of my own privilege when I have patients talking in the bathroom, you know, because there's only one bedroom in the house and only one bathroom and they have to, there's Mm -hmm. six people living in the house and they have to go in the bathroom. Yeah. Or the car conversation or the the car car. or, um, Mm -hmm. or that they, the connection is really bad or that they don't pick up the phone because, um, for two weeks in a row, because then I find out that they didn't have enough money to pay for the phone plan. Uh, all these things that, you know, they just come to your office and you never think about those things. Uh, or, or you might do, think about it sometimes, but it's not in your face, right? And that's also a reality. Also, uh, what COVID has shown, uh, um, many of our patients are home health, health aides. And so they have been working since the pandemic started and they have been in, in ground zero, basically. And so it's been, we've, we've had to deal with the fear of contracting the virus, yeah. which has been a fear for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. But in their case, it's even more because they, it triggers 
It triggers symptoms of PTSD. It's also how they make their livelihood. They have to work with people that either have COVID or uh, most of them work in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. So it's been an, a very big issue for our population. And uh, they, if, if they con contract the virus, they, they, they lose their jobs. They, so it's, it's been a source of, of a, a big source of stress for them and triggers of PTSD, anxiety disorders, panic attacks, major depression, uh, even dissociation for patients that, are, that had already uh, sort of gotten a handle on it. They go back, they revert to PTSD, to having showing PTSD symptoms and other symptoms. Yes. Yeah. I think what, um, what you're really highlighting and I, and, reading, we had just talked about reading this, this book called The Undocumented Americans by Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. And okay. she writes about in the book how the second responders are often undocumented people. So after 9-11, when all the first responders came in, it was all the second responders that came in and did a lot of the cleanup. And the physical health impact of that and the mental health impact of that. And then the lack of services for the individuals that are doing the, the really important work of keeping us safe, keeping everyone safe. And, and I think that's showing up at the time of COVID. So yes, there's all the doctors and nurses, and there's also the people that are cleaning the, the offices and the spaces and that are exposed in to COVID at, at high rates and, and may also not have the healthcare um, and resources and protection. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I just started teaching a, a class uh, called social justice, uh, tra psychological trauma and social justice. And uh, I was just mentioning that to my students last week about, I mean, if you imagine what these workers had to see and smell and, on September 11, when they were in, on, on ground zero, uh, when they were there, I, I was more a little bit more uh, specific with my students. I'm not going to do that here, but I am I'm very familiar with what they had to experience and, and imagine the trauma and not being able to get help for that. I just, uh, it, is, it is a human rights issue, actually. It becomes a human rights issue if you think about it. How can we put them in, in that situation and then not offer help to them? And then here you have the same thing. You have mo many, most of our patients have, have, uh, heard of multiple loss losses in their building, in their neighborhoods, in their community. And so there's this grieving process. So they're not only activated and, and being triggered uh, by the memories from being back home when they had to hide. For example, social isolation has brought up idea, uh, memories of having to hide in order to avoid being caught by the government uh, or being imprisoned by the government. Also, the Ebola virus, they also, many of, the, of our patients went through that, that where so many people died back in Africa. Um, and that, this is also a reminder to them. It's a painful reminder of what could happen and how many losses can be. And, and so, yeah, so you're, you're trying to work with trauma, uh, with PTSD symptoms or, or anxiety disorders and major depression with them. And then they ha also have this very sort of traumatic grief process that they have to go through, compounded grief. Uh, um, I have a patient from Iraq, who, a woman, who has lost already five relatives, not only here in the U.S., but also back in Iraq. And she already was um, uh, very symptomatic in terms of PTSD symptoms. So imagine trying to contain that and now all this pain that she's having, that she's going through and, and then having to do that over the phone. 
I tried to convince her to come to the hospital and I would meet her there because that's what we're doing with the more uh, complicated cases. And she refuses to come to the hospital because of fear of contracting the virus. So it's a, it's a very difficult situation as a therapist. I'm, 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 sort of my hands, I'm tra- I feel trapped. I mean, I, my, I told my hands are tied because I cannot help her enough. Mm-hmm. So um, I've resorted to calling her regularly just to check on her, to work with her son who lives with her, who also have probably, he's not my patient, but probably has symptoms of PTSD from what I gather. And, um, and he is having such a hard time. He feels so isolated. But in, in talking to me, sort of on a side, sort of uh, side therapy, I've been able to help, uh, help her because I sort of coach him to try to support her. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been quite difficult, quite difficult. Doing uh, trauma therapy over the phone, it's quite a challenge. Many of our patients don't have the video capability. Yeah. Well, you're doing trauma therapy over the phone, but you're also doing this culturally centric trauma, which is like, I've got it. I'm kind of getting the son involved. I'm not just talking with this one individual and an individualistic perspective, but it's really a different type of trauma therapy that may be what a lot of therapists are trained in, in the more individualistic trauma therapy model. And I'm wondering if you could describe or kind of break that down in terms of what it Mm -hmm. looks like for you and your, and your therapy office. Yeah, well, you know, the issue of religion, for example, I, I have, um, through my training, I was rarely trained in, in how to use religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, and for our patients, either they, they, whether they are from Africa or from Central America, which is also the majority of the second half of my caseload, religion and spirituality is such an important issue for them. It's such an important coping mechanism for them. And so I was trying to leave it outside of the therapy room, right? Because we don't want to get into political issues, into values, into, well, guess what? It's become the most important resource I have to work with them in terms of coping mechanisms. So they tell me about, they even play their gospel music to me in the session because that's what they are using when they're being triggered, when they are, when they are hyperventilating, when they are being... Uh, when they're feeling anxious, what do they do? They don't go to the Calm app that we now use. They go to the gospel music. Yeah. They play a, a video either of their pastor, uh, some sort of speech, uh, um, gospel uh, uh, talk, or they listen to their music. And we spend a lot of time talking about that. And so that's something I, I, I really, I knew it was important, but I, I didn't fully do many, many years ago. I didn't fully do and now I do it more uh, more frequently. Um, I, there are also things that I do that you would say, well, that, that could be a caseworker that would do that. Why would you spend your time doing that? Um, and for example, I go in, um, sit in, in front of the computer with them when they're in my office and I teach them how to access, um, um, the, the train, how to, how to take the train. I teach them how to, how to get a, a library card because I know these are things that are that drastically change the quality of life in their lives. If you think about it, may, many patients that don't have a job permit in the U.S., what do they do? They have PTSD. They are survivors of torture. What do they do? They sit there in their homes. 
uh, not not their own homes, but uh, sponsors, people that have sponsored them and have uh, taken them under their wing and helping them. They sit in their bedroom all day long with the windows closed because they don't want to be triggered. They're afraid of people. They don't speak the language. Uh, and, we, and by the way, we have a lot of interpreters. We use a lot of interpreters, although many of the African uh, asylum seekers speak English. Let me just clarify that. Mm-hmm. But so they are afraid. They don't know the system. They don't understand. They have never been outside of their village, outside of the communities in Africa. Many of them. Others are on the other ex- on the other side of the ex- spectrum. I have a, a judge who was in the high court in his country, and he's now uh, applying for Dunkin' Donuts, um, and among other things, I'm helping him right now. And yeah, it's this is how life changes when you when you move. Uh, to another country and you're seeking asylum. Things that I do, yes. So getting a library card. I've been, I've been able to help them get a library card. And guess what? They are able to get out of their rooms. They walk to the library if they're able to do that. Or even they, take, they can take a bus. Uh, I help them finding this. And this is not what I was trained. I, didn't, mm-hmm. I was not trained this way. And yet I realized that this would be much more helpful for them to treat their trauma is to get them out of their room to, to go to the library, sit there, pick a book that they like. And so have them engage, interact, reach out. That is trauma treatment. That's what you do, right? You want to you wanna, uh, treat avoidance symptoms of the clusters of PTSD? You, this is a perfect way of treating trauma. So this is a good example that I'm giving you as to how you have to think culturally, contextually, and then whose needs are you working on? Are there the needs, that your own needs uh, in the way you were trained or are the actual patient's needs? And that's something that we constantly have to revisit. Is it my needs and my way? Do I need to just offer, offer this treatment because I, we, I know that this is evidence-based and I know this is going to work for them? Or can I... Can I uh, make variations of this treatment? How do I make variations of evidence-based practices? I'm working with a postdoc student now, Oscar, who is, uh, his research is on um, cultural uh, accommodations of, uh, or cultural variations of evidence-based practices. And I think it's wonderful that he's working on that. There's a camp that says, well, you know, you're still using a method that was developed mainly with using white populations, was validated on white populations. So are we perpetuating sort of colonial thinking here? And why do we have to adapt that treatment culturally? Why don't we uh, change it completely? And then there's the other camp that says, well, who gets the grants? And and, uh, um, these treatments have been validated. There's no research money, the the same amount of research money to do the cultural work that that some researchers want to do. Uh, I, I don't think that NIMH, uh, NIH are still there in terms of uh, expanding their, their understanding of which research needs to be funded. And this is, I hope that this movement that's happening today in the U.S. becomes a window of opportunity for some of these organizations to revisit uh, what is it that, the, what, what kind of research they consider valuable and why. Because there's a huge health, there are all these health disparities out there and people don't think. These uh, fund, uh, uh, people that grant these funds don't think that these are, uh, the health disparities could be connected with the idea or related to the idea that 
some of this research might not be relevant to these populations. So let's think more about that. And thinking more about also the number of individuals in the United States that are immigrants. And I think for me, it was really helpful to just look at some of the statistics in terms of over 40 million of U.S. residents are foreign-born. Of these, 18 million are naturalized citizens, 11 million are authorized non-citizens, and 11 million are undocumented. These are millions, millions of Americans. And we and, also forget that that uh, the peop- the pilgrims were immigrants too. We don't want to we don't want to see it that way, but they were uh, immigrants too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so so we are a nation of immigrants. Absolutely. Yes. Some some came later. Some came earlier. Some came later. But we and it's hard some, for some people to wrap their heads around that the fact that we are a nation of immigrants and also that we have inflicted a lot of pain in people and that that is something that is very much present in the social agenda and sociopolitical agenda right now. That yes, we as a country has, uh, uh, we have inflicted a lot of pain. And that, yeah, well, I started talking about this and this might take me into outside of your question. (laughs) I actually think it's important to go into that. If you want to talk about the pain inflicted, I think it's important. Absolutely. You know, I I think I used to, to tell my students, even before I taught trauma, and, and having more of an observer, an outside perspective, being an immigrant here, that the United States will not fully become the, the country that it, it, it has to, that it can be until we deal with the legacy of slavery. And now it's, it's, it's out there. I mean, you have all, the, uh, all black people and African Americans trying to show the world that this uh the way that 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 slavery is still perpetuated today that systemic racism perpetuates the 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 practice of slavery and it might look different today but it's uh the dynamic is the same their lives are still they still have the health disparities and look at uh, uh who who are the communities that have uh, died in, in bigger numbers in, uh, from covid African Americans have uh, Americans have died at a rate of three and four and five times more than uh, whites, also Latinos, and uh, that is a good example of being invisible. How they are being invisible in society, mm-hmm. the the wages that uh, African Americans in, in terms of of salaries that they yearly salaries that they make compared to the average white population, that disparity is huge. And uh, and that's how slavery still keeps showing up today. And this the imprisonment, morning, imprisonment and the of imprisonment, black Americans and people. The, the, yes, yes, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely. And who's on on, on death road? And uh, that we can't not talk about the, level, the the rates of imprisonment of African American men, especially men. We can't talk. We can't stop talking about that. It's important to bring all that up. And how about the conditions of public schools in, in, in black neighborhoods? We can't, we have to talk about that. Why are we treating them as second level citizens? Why does that still continue? So now that I'm teaching this, um, tra- that just started again, teaching the social justice and psychological trauma class, I'm trying to help students see the connection between taking down the Confer- Confederate monuments and recovering from trauma, 
right? That's not written in any trauma book, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it is, you know, um, Ken, Dr. Kendi, Abram Kendi, who was just hired by Boston University, my university, uh, to, to lead an institute of the study of race and ethnicity. Um, he mentioned uh, in a conversation, in a, on a college-wide conversation or, or university-wide conversation we had yesterday, he said something like, the final act of violence is the denial of violence. Yeah. And so when you, treat about when you think about trauma and violence, and Judy Herman said that in her book, Trauma and Recovery. She said that the, the survivor of trauma needs to have witnesses right. to their trauma. It's important to have a witness and someone that will validate what you went through. Otherwise, it's, it's very difficult to process the trauma because you don't have the social uh, support and someone outside of you to validate what you right. went through. The denial of trauma is part of the trauma and re-traumatizing and maintains and the trauma and prevents, yeah, healing. Absolutely, it perpetuates, Absolutely. yes. Perpetuates, and so yeah. what does that mean that they are taking those confederate? People say, well, they cannot erase history. Well, you know, I was trying to think, what would it, how can I explain to uh, my white friends and colleagues, what does that mean? Oh, my white students. How, what, what does it mean to take down a conf, uh, and why would they do that? And then I thought, okay, let's say that we would put out a Harvey Weinstein statue up there. How nice. would we feel about walking by it every day when you go exactly. to work? Okay. Right. How would you feel about it? You would, you would probably have a, a fit. You would demand an immediate removal of the Harvey Weinstein statue from your neighborhood. You would do all kinds of things. Well, those statues, that's what it means for them in terms of the trauma. You, and some people might say, well, this happened so many years ago. No. The, if you know about intergenerational transmission of trauma, Rachel Yehuda has wonderful research on uh, the, the, how even uh, your genes change after being exposed to intergenerational transmission of trauma. I mean, after uh, grandparents, great-grandparents, they can transmit those, those uh, changes. Um, and so it is, it is uh, it, it's in the body. Uh, I, you know, the truth is that, yes, it's true that the body keeps the score, that, that trauma stays in the body. And uh, until you not only work in the body, but also talk about it, both... Uh, and, and society talks about it, we are not going to recover from this um, uh, problem with slavery. I, a problem is a very kind word. We are not going to recover from that as a country. And I think that, that it's, uh, it, it's long due to talk about it, yeah. to talk about it and process it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for mm -hmm. speaking to that. Sure. You've mentioned some hope some little threads of hope throughout uh, our conversation today, hope in terms of changing of our trauma treatment, changing our approach and, and just the, the change that's some positive change that's happening in our country right now. And I'm, I'm curious for you personally, where, what is your hope for, um, for the future? Yes. I, you know, I, I am seeing this as a, as a window of opportunity for, uh, as I said, for our country to move forward it is a window of opportunity because uh, we have a legacy of amnesia in, in, in terms of the U.S. history. We talk about things and we forget for many years and we go back. So last time we, really, we were talking this way, I understand, was in the, uh, during the civil rights movement. 
yes. even though I wasn't I was not here. So so that we're having again those conversations, but now uh, we're having it at another level because thankfully we have um, people of color now in in, in positions uh, quote unquote of power where they can uh, share that message even uh, to a wider audience. We also have videos and, and that we can capture what many people denied so many times. And it's right there in front of our faces. I mean, we are seeing that. And, and in a way, it's, it's very traumatic to watch those videos. But I am happy that we have that medium because otherwise many of us would have not believed, we would have not believed all these, all the, these uh, accounts of, of uh, abuse and, and lynching. But uh, I am uh, hopeful. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we will keep the conversation. But it's not only the conversation. I'm hopeful that we are going to start making actual structural changes, uh, systemic changes. And I've seen that. I've seen in removing of the statues and changing the symbols of the flags in defunding police, in uh, naming more faculty of color to higher up positions. But we still have a long way to go. This morning I read an article about the, how many... Editors of color, as you know, I'm associate editor of the journal Psychological Trauma, which is an APA journal. The how many editors, white editors, are as compared to editors of color, and the percentages remain sort of ninety percent of white editors. And what what does that mean? I mean, we need to share the resources. We need to uh, start changing the narrative of how things are, and, and in the field of psychological of psychology in general. We can't change the narrative until we have people in those positions that will be able to speak to those narratives. And so right now there is mainly one narrative dominating. Let's uh, engage and bring more people into positions of power, more people of color into positions of power so that we can all have all these different narratives and be more inclusive to those. That is extremely important. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that's going to start happening more and more. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sure, Matar. Sure. I feel like a, an hour with you uh, has been such a rich experience and that uh, has really impacted my own thoughts of, you know, just moving forward as a psychologist. And I am so grateful that you're doing this work in academia and also in the um, feet on the ground work that you're doing and appreciate you so much for your offerings. Well, I, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, we will link to some of the uh, some of the resources that you've, some of the books you've mentioned, other resources. Um, I'd love to link link to some resources for mental health resources in the show notes of this pop podcast, and um, as well as uh, you as an individual. So thank you. Thank you so much for giving me a platform platform to speak. Um, yes, and to talk about all these issues, I'm uh, very grateful. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.